This is Dr. Seema Yasmin. I'm a professor at Stanford University and a writer. And today I am talking with Dr. Williams about my book, The Impatient Dr. Langer, One Man's Fight to End the HIV Epidemic. And you are listening to Race, Violence and Medicine. Welcome. I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams, surgeon, speaker, activist, and your host for Race, Violence, and Medicine. We have a treat today. Our guest is Dr. Seema Yasmin, and I think she has the best tag I've ever heard. She goes uh, on her website, it says, science writer, author, disease detective. Dr. Yasmin, thanks for joining us today on Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Now, we've been trying to get this together for a while, so um, my schedule got a little bit off today. I just dropped off my daughter. I'm sitting in the parking lot uh, getting this, 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 this uh, interview done, but the show must go on. We're not going to skip miss an opportunity, are we? I love it that you're juggling fatherhood with your podcast, with your job. That's, that's real. That's life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you have done so much. You've, turned, you've taken a very interesting route to where you are. So before we talk about your new book, The Inpatient Doctor, is it Dr. Lang or Dr. Lange? Dr. Langa. It's a Dutch name. Dr. Lange. Well, <laughs> yes, and you're right. You mentioned that in the uh, book, how people were butchering the pronunciation of his name. And I just did the exact same thing. So <laughs> The Inpatient Dr. Langa. And the book is going to tie together the Malaysian Airlines flight that was shot down in 2015 with a very That's interesting important. story about the uh, global AIDS epidemic. But stay tuned to get to that. Let's first learn about Dr. Yasmin. So tell us about this path you took to where you are now. It was totally unplanned and it sounds corny to say it, but at every single turn, I have followed my heart. Um, and that's just me being honest. Like I've just stayed true to things that interested me or made me curious. And instead of feeling like, okay, I finished med school. Now I must do doctoring and I must just be a hospital doctor my whole life. I feel like there's been a couple of times where I've dared to step off the conveyor belt and try different things. So I was a hospital doctor in London. Then I moved to America in 2011 to join the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a branch of the federal government. It's a group of doctors and scientists who are trained to be deployed to an epidemic, to any kind of outbreak to try and stop it in its tracks and stop the contagion getting worse. So I did that for a few years here in America and then had an aha moment during one of these outbreaks. In fact, it was an outbreak of flesh-eating bacteria in the Navajo Nation where I just got really frustrated with the injustice and the, the fact that it's poverty, really, that drives a lot of these epidemics. And I was thinking it's really important to be a physician to me. It's really important to be a public health physician and to be trying to protect the health of communities and not just individuals but whole communities. And what use is it doing that when... What we write eventually ends up in medical journals that like, 
hardly anyone reads them. And so at that point, I left the Centers for Disease Control. I left the Epidemic Intelligence Service to go to journalism school, trained as a journalist in, at the University of Toronto in Canada and got hired straight away by the Dallas Morning News, which is how you and I, Brian, came to know each other because we met under really terrible circumstances for anyone listening who doesn't know how Brian and I got to know each other I was a reporter in Texas at the Dallas Morning News when in 2016 we had a horrific downtown Dallas close to my newsroom and me being a doctor the way that I was going to cover it was the whole newsroom was mobilized to cover this mass shooting um, but I went straight that evening to the hospitals to be like what's going to be the, the medical response to this mass shooting and then you and I met because um, you were one of the physicians caring for those who'd been shot um, so but long story short from Texas I ended up coming to Stanford as a John S. Knight journalism fellow in 2000 and 18, no, 2017. And then I stayed on here. I got hired back for a job. So now I am a clinical assistant professor in Stanford School of Medicine and also director of the new Stanford Health Communication Initiative. So that's my career in a nutshell. We'll see what happens next. Well, I think you probably have the corner on that market because from med school to disease detective, journalist and now where you are now i think there's there's not anybody else on the planet that has those qualifications <laughs> to do the job you do so you could probably name your your salary price couldn't you <laughs> you know and it, that's why it's so funny to me that actually following my heart ended up being good for me and it, you know that feeling you get sometimes like no i've just got to stay on this path and this is the right, right. Thing to do, and it's going to be t like it is terrifying to step off that it is a big leap of faith you worry what others are going to think about you like who is she she's a doctor like why is she in journalism school but really like following your passion it does work out in the end it's amazing there are so many life lessons in what you just talked about dr yasmin as far as, as following your heart but also like how you talked about your time as a disease detective where you mentioned the connection between poverty and healthcare disparities. And that's something that I think people need to understand is that people do not choose to live with uh, less than optimal health needs. There's uh, so many factors that contribute to that. And that is an injustice which we can tackle. Yeah, and we see it every single day. So this was my frustration with being a hospital doctor. I loved it. I loved it so much. I loved being that person in the ER that could help you right when you were in pain. But I got frustrated because I felt like the, the area that I worked in was in East London. It's actually the neighborhood that I grew up in. It's called Hackney. And I went to medical school at Cambridge and it was super fancy and super white. And so after four years there, I needed to leave that bubble and go back to the real world, go back to my neighborhood. And as I'm treating patients, I know their life stories. I know many of them are immigrants. They're really poor. People are homeless. We had a lot of sex workers. We had um, injecting drug users. And I felt like what we were treating when they came in was the tip of the iceberg. And that what we were doing was only really patching them up to the point that they could hobble out of the hospital but we knew they came back and we knew they came back over and over so one day i'd be treating somebody and i'd be draining an abscess that was infected because somebody was injecting drugs patch that up you know give them the antibiotics and they come back a month later but this time it's not an abscess it's hepatitis c which at the time we couldn't cure 
And I got really frustrated with a system that I thought wasn't dealing with the root problems, the root causes of illness, which are poverty, which are unstable housing, which are not having good food to eat. And that's really why I transitioned from hospital medicine to becoming a public health doctor, because I felt like that specialty was trying to do a more holistic job of caring for people and communities. Like public health really tries to connect all the dots about your environment, about your housing, about your education. Like a lot of this is not down to genetics. It's down to oppression and it's down to systemic oppressions. And you're uh, talking about your experience in the UK, but thematically, much of that is still mirrored here in the United States when it comes to... You can say it's worse, right? Because here people have more barriers to accessing healthcare, I would argue, because in England, even though I'm saying the medical system was not good enough, at least it was free. People didn't rack up bills there was that at least that barrier of oh i can't pay a copay i can't pay to see my doctor like that did not exist you could see me um i just felt like the system was not placed was designed well enough for me to help you as your doctor in as good a way as possible and that's why public health became my calling right and i guess we should do mention here just drop this in here that you were a pulitzer prize runner-up or finalist Yeah, for the story on you, in fact. So if you go to the Pulitzer Prize website for every year, they'll show you who won. And for every category, so like I was a finalist in the breaking news category, there's one winner and there are two finalists. And myself and my team at the Dallas Morning News were finalists in 2017 for our coverage of that mass shooting in downtown Dallas. And we were one of the two finalists. And I am really proud that my story about you is in there because this story of the mass shooting was really a story about race and the story that I did about you covered that like it, it really got to the heart of that problem I tell you Dr. Yasmin I just got chills like I like my hair standing up on my arms I had no idea that that Pulitzer was that I was somehow connected to that honor that you received and, oh man, uh, I thought I would have. I thought I would have told you. And by the way, I should say, please call me Seema. Um, and I, I hope you don't think I've been over familiar by calling you by your first name. Um, I'm happy to call you Dr. Williams. I have so much respect for you, and especially for the honesty that you had and the vulnerability that you showed when the nations, the entire nation's cameras were pointed at your face. You know that the day after or the few days after the mass shooting, those days are are a blur to me because. I'm sure the two of us did not get much sleep. You were in the OR, you were in the ER, and you were treating people as they came in. And I was staying up all night trying to cover this so that the public could understand what was happening. But the way that you spoke about your experience as a black man, as a black physician, treating police officers who we know are dangerous when it comes to their interactions with black people and people of color um, here in the States and elsewhere. You were so powerful, but so raw and so honest. And I feel really privileged that I got to be in the room during that time when you were addressing the nation. I mean, all those cameras were there. We were packed into that room when you were talking. If you remember, there was CNN and NBC and PBS, and then there was me and there was all these radio reporters writing down your every word and I also had the privilege of interviewing you straight after that but it was such a, a powerful experience I will never forget that well uh, thank you for the comments and I will say first of all I'm going to call you Dr. Yasmin <laughs> because uh, it, it, it's, it's very intentional 
for me to ensure that my women medical colleagues are getting the respect and recognition they deserve for their titles. <laughs> so, uh, you know what? I want to honor that too because you are a rarity, right? In a, um, this country has very, very few black physicians, black men physicians. So I want to respect that and I want to honor that too. So I will call you Dr. William. No, see, I'm, I, I'm, I'm the host and it, it's very good, very good what you just did. You used some of that journalist Jedi mind trick on it on me and made me the guest on my own show, okay? <laughs> That's not right, Dr. Yasmin. That's not right. So <laughs> we'll stop it there. But yeah, that you may have told me about that prize. It's quite possible. But I did. I did tell you. I there was months that. that there was a, that was a blur. It, it was a oh. blur as far as how the train that just took off. It was like actually a rocket ship. It was an emotional blur. So I, I'm sorry if I forgot that. I was just kind of mentioning that in passing and had no idea, uh, or I did not wow. recall. No, that, don't that, apologize. That was, I was involved in that, but congratulations. Anyway, the point I was trying to make was, you are very accomplished. You have, you're a doctor, you're a disease detective, you're an author, writer, you're, and you almost want to kill a surprise. And, but next I want to talk about your book, The Inpatient Dr. Longa. And, but we'll get to that after we take a quick break. So, I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. We are listening to, or you are listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Our guest is Dr. Seema Yasmin, science writer, author, disease detective. When we come back, we're going to talk about her new book, The Inpatient, Dr. Longa. Stick with us. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Seema Yasmin, science writer, author, disease detective, she is the author of a new book called The Inpatient Dr. Longa. And, uh, okay, we're going to start calling, I'm going to call you Seema from now on for the okay. rest of the interview, okay? We're going to go there. <laughs> but uh, reading your book, I'm not only was fascinated by this story because before I read your book, this Malaysia Airlines flight, it was, it was one layer to me, right? It was this plane that was shot down by rebels. But within that story is another story about how that impacted the fight against the global AIDS epidemic. And then within that story, again, is your story and your journey through all this. So the story was captivating, but also I found your writing just absolutely amazing, which I guess is to be expected because you are, you've been trained. But uh, I just want to say I commend you for this book, but also opening my eyes into something I did not know about. But I want to share uh, that with our listeners too. So talk to us about the inpatient Dr. Longa, your, your latest novel. Uh, my nonfiction book. And thank you so much for those really kind words. So this book is a, a book of nonfiction about a thing that happened. And you might remember this in 2014. That was that horrific year where two Malaysia Airlines planes faced tragedy. I think earlier in that year, it was MH370 was the plane that disappeared and right. found. And then in July of 2014, Malaysia Airlines flight MH17, it took off from Amsterdam in the Netherlands and it was flying east to go to Australia. And it flew over a war zone in Europe. It flew over the part of Crimea that Russia had annexed. And as the plane flew over that area, the pro-Russian rebels on the ground looked up thought it was a military aircraft and they fired a ground-to-air Buke missile killing all 298 people 
mm-hmm. on that plane. And when the plane hit the ground, there's actually video of those rebels kind of crunching over people's luggage and passports and swearing in Russian and being like, oh crap, we thought this was a military plane and it wasn't. It was tourists and physicians and scientists and nuns and all sorts of people who were going on vacation or business travel. And one of the people who died on that plane was very dear to me. He was a mentor and he was one of the reasons that I ended up going into med school because no one from my family is a doctor. No one, especially the women are not encouraged to become educated or go to university. But this physician, this scientist, his name was Dr. Jupp Langer, very Dutch name. I met him when I was younger and he really believed in me and encouraged me. And I think every child, every young person needs that. And especially me, because I was going to schools where they weren't great schools and they weren't in great neighborhoods in East London. And my teachers would say things to me like, don't even bother applying to medical school. You won't get in. People like you don't become doctors. And I believed them. So I didn't apply until I met him. And I thought, no, I can do this. And he was a really phenomenal man because he dedicated his life to fighting HIV. He was very angry about the epidemic. He was really angry that it was such an unjust epidemic that poor people, black people, people of color, gay people were the ones that were mostly affected. Um, And like I said, he dedicated his life And just in the months before he died on that plane, before he was killed, he was actually working towards a cure for HIV. So this this attack, this terrorist attack is really a reminder of how conflict puts us back when it comes to scientific advancement and and public health advances. Right. So talk to us more about the, the impact on the continued fight for um, fat against the global AIDS epidemic, because when you, you describe Dr. Longa, he was very passionate about this and was really speaking truth to power against large organizations that were not as invested in uh, combating this epidemic, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And I believe one of the quotes had something to do with Coca-Cola, uh, but not getting, you can get Coca-Cola to every part of Africa, but you can't get the AIDS medications, that is unconscionable. Yeah, so imagine, right, this disease rears its head in 1981, right when he qualifies as a doctor, in fact, right as he steps out of med school, and suddenly people are like dying in the tens of thousands, and doctors can't figure out what it is or why they're dying and why they're young and what's happening, that we get really big and fast progress actually in HIV. So the first medicines to treat this virus come around in the mid nineties. And that's really exciting, right? If suddenly you have something that you can give to your patients, then we get more and more. And by 2000, we have a handful of drugs that we can give to people living with HIV, except people, senators, public health or leaders are on the record back then, back in the mid to late nineties, saying things like, Africans shouldn't have these medicines. Like these medicines can't go to Africa because they're too complicated to take. They need refrigeration. Africans don't have clocks or watches. They won't take their medicines on time. Like horrific stuff, except when people in power are saying those things, it's very easy to fall in line and normalize that. And yup, Langer was often that lone voice on these platforms that point at people and be like, you're racist, shut up. 
He was very, very outspoken. He definitely used his privilege of being a white man, an educated person, but he really called people out to the point that he'd get in trouble. People didn't like him. He'd get his bosses in trouble, but he didn't care. He was like, you're stupid. That's ridiculous. Everyone with HIV deserves these medicines. They can't just be used in the West. And he was a real game changer because of that, because he was really brave and really impatient. And talk to us about his, his partner, ja Jacqueline. Yeah, so Jacqueline was his partner in love and in life. And she sadly died next to him on the plane. And in fact, Brian, you know, I, I explained at the beginning of this story how I actually heard about the attack on the plane. I was in Dallas. I was in the newsroom at the Dallas Morning News about to go live on CNN to talk about a front page story I'd done that day. This is the summer of 2014. So you might remember that we had an unprecedented number of kids, like young kids, crossing the border from Central America into Texas on their own. And a lot of people were chatting crap i can't swear on your show so i'll just say that um, <laughs> politicians were making up stuff and saying these kids are bringing diseases into america and i'd written a front page story saying that that was not true in fact these kids were more likely to get sick with things like measles in texas than they were where they came from so i'm about to go on cnn to do this story and suddenly a producer says to me we have to cancel your segment there's breaking news this plane's been hit and I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Okay. And then moments later, I get a phone call from my mother saying, I'm really sorry, Seema, but Yup is on that plane. And I was like, what? Because when you see things like that on the news and there was footage of this wreck that was just burning and smoldering, it's horrible, right? As a human, your, your heart sinks, but you never think there's going to be a personal connection. And one of the first things that I thought was, oh my gosh, I can't believe this has happened. Jacqueline is going to be beside herself because they were so connected at the hip. They, you know, they were, and I don't know why it didn't occur to me that she was on the plane too, because she did go everywhere with him. But in my mind, he had died in this horrific way. And oh my gosh, had somebody checked in on her. And then of course I found out soon after that she had been sat next to him. And she was an amazing woman. She had been an AIDS nurse in the Netherlands in the 80s and worked with Europe since then to try and fight the epidemic around the world. Well, I, I want to honor and the fact that you lost a, a dear friend and mentor and, you know, actually two people that are very close to you from this tragedy. So I, I, I'm sure that that was a personal loss. Uh, can you tell us more about the the impact their loss has had on their continued work. I think there's some foundations that have been started in their names. Yeah. Um, how's their absence affected how the work pro progresses? So, you know, I think that most of us that go into science and medicine, the vast majority of us, don't do it because we're gonna become famous or become rock stars, right? So most people did not know Yup Langer's name, but in the world of HIV science, in the world of HIV medicine and public health, he was known as a game changer because of his personality, because he was so impatient. You know, in Yup's mind, nobody was doing enough to fight HIV. He felt like all of us were like being too political, too bureaucratic, not going out there and doing enough, which is why the book is called The Impatient Dr. Langer. In his mind, nobody was doing anything quickly enough. 
when he died, when he was killed on that plane, suddenly he was in the news and all, I remember CNN were like, oh my gosh, did we just lose the cure for HIV? This genius, this mastermind was on the plane. And so he, he didn't become a household name, but suddenly people knew about him. The impact it had in the AIDS community at the time was it sent these ripples around the world. Like, how do you deal with the loss of somebody who was such a leader in the field and who was such a game changer, somebody who held many of us accountable and kind of really kept that momentum going so that as many people became quite complacent about HIV AIDS in a way like, oh, it's fine, we've got it under control, it's okay. Yup was fighting against that attitude to say, wake up, this is not going away. We should have ended it already and we have so much more work to do. So for me, the impact is that we lost a visionary, a really hard worker, somebody who thought outside the box and pushed all of us to work a lot more. And of course, you know, in science and in medicine, we never work in isolation. When you develop a cure for something, it's never one person, even though sometimes one person gets the award. So Yup worked with so many brilliant people and they continue their work. But I think that the, the, the loss is of that leader and that visionary, really. Well, and I have a two-part question regarding the book and the work you did on it. Uh, one is about you personally, and then one will be for the reader who reads the book. And I've started doing some more writing myself in the last couple of years. And I, I oh, recognize that whenever I finish a piece, that I'm changed by what I've written, right? You hope to impact someone who writes or reads it, but I, I feel that I'm changed. So how was writing this book change you? How has it impacted you? That'll be the first part. And then what do you hope a reader would get out of this book? Also, my answer to those two is actually really connected because I'd never written a book. When I was asked to write this book, I said, no, it's too soon. It's too close to home. It's too sad. I don't want to do it. This is so painful. And then a while later, people came back to me and said, this book is a way of extending Yup's legacy. Like, so like I was saying, he's not a household name, but how amazing would it be if many of us around the world could pick up a book and read about his life and be inspired by his energy and think, wait a minute, I can do something. Maybe it's not in HIV, maybe it's in domestic violence or maybe it's in anti-racism work. So they said that it would really be a way of inspiring a new generation of humanitarians and activists. And it was that argument that eventually made me think, okay, you know what, get over yourself, Seema. I think it's going to be hard, but it's going to be really worthwhile to write this book. So that's my hope for it, which was the second part of your question. I really hope that it's sad and it's tragic and, oh my gosh, like what a horrible way to die. So, but I think besides all of that, I hope that people can still read it and be really moved and really inspired by his energy and his vision, his dedication, you know? He was in his 60s when he died and was still really thinking that there was so much more work to do and it's a massive loss to us that we don't have him guiding us and, and doing that work. Um, in terms of like the first part of your question, the book changed me in that it was my first book and I realized that as hard and as grueling and as many sleepless nights as there were writing it, 
I actually love writing books. And I discovered that writing this one, it felt like such a privilege to sit down with people and interview them and, and do archival research and go through medical charts from 1981 in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And I just really loved piecing all of those bits together and weaving it into a narrative that looks at Yup's life story, but also weaves it together with the origin story of HIV. So finishing the book, seeing it out there in the world, doing readings and hearing people's response to it has really spurred me on to write more books. Um, and so that's been like a really positive side of it. Well, I will tell you, Seema, you've succeeded on several levels for, for me. I was inspired by Dr. Longo's story in your book. I was inspired as a doctor just by the work he's doing in medicine, but also as someone who wants to eradicate healthcare inequity, I was inspired by his, his passion and his activism. I was inspired by your story and how you included in there in your journey that you've taken, but also lastly, inspired by you. You've done so much and, uh, Man, I think you can make a lot of people feel like underachievers, Seema. No, no, no. You have to be the opposite. You have to look at me and be like, if she can do it, coming from her background, where like no one in her family went to university, then, you know, then it means that you can do it too. So right, right. Don't think of it that way. Think of it like, wait, she didn't even want to write a book. She didn't know how to write a book. If she figured it out, then I can figure it out too. And I'm definitely like really open to answering questions. People want to get in touch with me and ask about that process or ask about career transitions like let's not be um put off by one another but let's like build each other up and use each other as inspiration and that's a perfect segue how how can our listeners contact you yeah i have a website that has like my email and a contact form on it and then i'm active on twitter at dr yasmin with the doctor spelled out and on instagram as dr seema yasmin and like i said i really want to encourage people that if you want to write if you want to do something creative if you want to go into medicine like i'm really happy to talk about all of those things all right dr seema yasmin science writer author disease detective thank you for your time on our show today Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. It's a real privilege to speak with you. All right. I'm going to have all of her contact information on the website. You can go to brianwilliamsmd.com or check out racebalancemedicine.com. Either place will get you to the uh, podcast. And I know that you're listening, but maybe your friends and families and colleague, family members and colleagues do not know about the show. So please share it with them. And as always, I want to make sure this show is worthwhile to you. So send me your critiques, comments, suggestions. And the best way to reach me is on Twitter at BHWilliamsMD. But again, you can check out the website, BrianWilliamsMD.com and send me a note there. As always, I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in.